Thank you. Selamat uh, siang atau uh, petang ya. You say here, petang. Okay, great to be here. My first time here in your church. And, uh, but it's, it's fantastic to be in the house of God. And, and what a privilege it is to be able to uh, freely worship God like we're doing here. Uh, there's quite a few countries in the world <coughs> today where you can't do that. Uh, but we're still free in doing that here. So it's an awesome privilege. And fantastic that we have been entrusted by God uh, to be able to read His Word and then do something with it. The Word of God is alive. It's the truth, right? We, we know that. And so whatever is in here, we know this comes directly from God. It is meant for us so that we can get to know God more, so that we can understand His character, His heartbeat more, so we understand God's heartbeat for the world, for mankind, and, uh, and He desires us, those who have already received Christ in their lives, to now go uh, into the world and make disciples of all nations. That's, that's not just for missionaries or pastors or whatever, but that's for every Christian, every person who's received Christ in their lives has the, uh, has the task now being given, the responsibility by the Lord uh, to go and to make disciples. And he, he entrusts us. He fills us with His Holy Spirit. He gives us His Holy Spirit in order to get the job done. So it's not just a, it's His job or their job. No, it's our job, our task. Why? Because God loves mankind. And it doesn't matter who you are, God loves mankind. It doesn't matter what you've done in the past, God loves mankind. And He wants you and He wants mankind, uh, those who are saved and those who are lost, to be able to have that opportunity to, to hear the gospel message and then to uh, make a decision, do I want to receive this Jesus or reject Him? So that's not our task, to receive it. We cannot help, we cannot make people receive Jesus. They have to do that themselves and the Holy Spirit will help them. But we are, have the responsibility of getting this, this message out to as many people as we can, while we are still alive. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know how long I've still got to live. Do you? Nobody really does, do they? But I do know this. My life doesn't belong to me anymore. The very day that I asked Jesus to come into my life is the very day that I surrendered my life over to Him. He died on that cross for me and you. He, he willingly went to the cross because He loves us. And it says in Scripture that He actually bought us by going to the cross. So we don't belong to ourselves anymore. We belong to Him. And so whatever I do now, every day that I use now, is not for me, but it's for Him. And that's why the day that I asked Jesus to come into my life, I understood what that meant. Now, I want just to turn to Romans chapter 1, verse 14. And it says in there, this is a book that Paul wrote, and Paul... Uh, a great man of God, and I learned a lot from the scriptures, uh, from Paul's writings. And, um, and it says here in verse 14, chapter 1, verse 14, For I have a great sense of obligation, or I owe a debt. I'm a debtor, he says, to the people in both the civilized world and the rest of the world, to the educated and the uneducated alike. Yeah? So I'm eager to come to you in Rome to, to, to preach the good news. In other words, he's really saying, I, I, owe, I owe a debt to mankind. Now, what, is, what sort of a debt is he talking about? Is he talking about money? Of course not. He's not talking about money. But he's talking about the love of Christ. Now, remember, Paul's name was actually Saul first. He was a, a, a fanatic uh, Pharisee who hated the church, who hated the Christians. 
And he got all of a sudden the idea to go to Damascus. He got, asked permission from the Pharisees and the Sadducees to go to Damascus to gather up all these Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem so he can torture them there and uh, in, in the uh, wherever it is, imprison them and then torture them. And so he was on his way to Damascus, and almost in Damascus, Jesus knocks him off his horse, and he meets with Jesus. Now, ever since that moment. Paul never needed any more convincing who Jesus was. He knew who Christ was because he met him there. He was blinded for three days, and after three days, then Ananias came and he prayed over him, and then he was able to see again. Jesus, he met with Jesus on that road, and he understood then all of a sudden that Jesus, he, he not only just met him, but he also said, all your sins... All the things that you've done in the past, all the horrid things, the little sins and the big thing, sins, I forgive you. I washed them clean. I do not even remember them anymore. So Paul understood this unconditional love of Christ. He mentions it in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. He says, the love of Christ compels me not to give up, to keep on going. The love of Christ controls me. This unconditional love of Christ. He understood what this love meant for him. And that's why he says now, I owe a debt to mankind, to the educated, the uneducated, meaning everybody. While I'm alive, while I'm breathing, I owe this debt to man. I've got to get this message of love and salvation out to as many people as possible. Even this last book that he wrote, the last letter, 2 Timothy, he's in Rome, he's in prison, and he's going to be executed any moment. And he still encourages Timothy, come on, mate, you can do it. I want you to take this baton, I want you to go for it, I want you to encourage the churches, build up the churches, encourage the Christians around, go for it. Still, even though he knew that any moment he's going to be executed, he's still encouraging everybody because he understood the love of Christ. That unconditional love of Christ. You know, for many, many years, I wondered, you know, what is life all about? You know, I, I used to think my life is boring. My life is boring. If this is what life is all about, who wants to live? I used to go through years like that, thinking I'm born, and I was brought up, brought up in a Catholic uh, family, but the Catholic family, we just went to church once a week. We didn't have any relationship with God. We never spoke about God at home at all. We just went to church and did the traditional thing that everybody else seems to do. Never talked about God. And so I thought, all we do is we are born and then we die. And in between, you just try to make the most of it. How boring is that? What a boring life. That's what I thought. That's life. Boring. But I tell you what, I just, I knew there was, has to be something more than just a boring life. Our lives are not meant to be boring. And so I just wondered why? why. Why are we living like this? Why do we get up in the morning and we go to school or we go to work and, then, and, 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 and cook and, and, and go shopping and, and every day seems to be the same? You go to church on Sunday for what? I used to think when I was at church, you know, at the Catholic church, go to church, I went until I was 12 years old. That's when my parents divorced. And then I realized, I thought, if there is a God, he obviously doesn't care much about us because look at the mess we're in at home. And I sat there in the church for the last time and I'm thinking, what am I doing here? I can't even understand what the priest is saying because it's all in Latin. 
And so what are we doing here? We're listening to a guy who can't even understand. We're going through all the motions. Dance, hit, kneel, stance, hit, kneel. All the things and everybody, you know, as soon as people get out there, they're the biggest crooks under the sun. Uh, not the Catholics, but I mean, I'm just saying people, right? Uh, my friends, me. Is this what life is all about? I, there had to be more to it than that. So I went on searching. Is there a God? You know, I, rem- I remember one day thinking, you know, there's got to be more to life. It's probably when I was 18 years old and I went back to Australia. I was eight years old when I was, I was born in Australia. Eight years old, I went, my parents took us back to Holland. And I lived there for 10 years in Holland. I didn't like the place at all because of all the dramas that we went through. 18, I went back to Australia. And there I am wondering, what am I doing here? What's life all about? How come I've got a life like this? I'm not happy. Why am I not happy? It's probably because I'm not married yet. And so I need to marry. So I just, I married this Dutch lady, the, the real Dutch lady, not the milk Dutch lady, yeah, but the, the real, the, a real Dutch lady. I mean, she, she was in love with me in grade four in Holland. She asked me in grade four, grade four, I think I must have been about 11 or so, or 10, and she goes, do you want to go with me? I said, where to? And she goes, no, you want to go with me? You know, go. I said, ah. I mean, girls are always so much more advanced than boys, right? But, but anyway, I, I didn't get it. But um, I married her. And she already had a child, uh, Tanya. She became my daughter as well then. So my, my daughter was not mine, but she's mine. Right? And so I married her. And then I was happy. Boy, I was happy. We had another kid, Paul. And we had two children. Oh, I was so happy. And then all of a sudden this emptiness came back again. And I'm thinking, what is it? There's something missing. And then I realized my friends, all my friends seem to have everything. And I don't have everything. We're working our guts out. And, 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 you know, we can't buy what they are buying. They've got all the money in the world. We don't have, seem to have that. So I, th- I realized it's obviously because I don't have all the money like they have. So I started to find three jobs instead of one job. I worked 19 hours a day instead of, and then I had three, day, three hours a day sleep and 19 hours a day work. Work, 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 work. My wife worked, so we had uh, four incomes. Wow. We then started to become well off. We had everything that we wanted for a while. You know how you work, work, because, you know, you, the television tells you as well, you have to have this motorbike or this car. If you don't have it, how could you not? You can't be happy until you've got it, right? And then, of course, you, you, you know that that's not true. But after you see that a hundred times, then you start to think, maybe it's true. And then you go and buy the thing. And then you're happy as Larry for a week. And then the novelty wears off, and then you go back to the same thing again. And then you work a little bit more for the next thing, the next gadget that comes out, right? And then I realized money doesn't bring happiness either. What is this emptiness that I'm feeling? And then I thought maybe it's because I don't believe in anything. I don't believe in a God. But who is God? Is Buddha God? Is Muhammad God? Is Krishna God? Is Jesus God? I don't know who God is. Who is God? And so I I thought when I went to school in Australia, in the Catholic school, I remember there was this nun Sister Hannah, and a, and a priest, Father Burns. And they were the most loveliest people. They were always talking about Jesus. Never Mary, but it was always Jesus for them. Jesus here, Jesus there, Jesus everywhere. We didn't, I didn't sort of take much notice then, but I can remember they were very nice, kind people. So I thought if anybody maybe knows God, then it would be them. So I'll, go, I'll give that God a, a, a chance first. So I waited until everybody was out of the house, and uh, then I said, uh, uh, Jesus, uh, I haven't got a clue if you can hear me, whether you're alive or still nailed to the cross, or I have no idea. 
But I am talking to you. I'm glad nobody's listening uh, else because they probably think I'm, a, I'm cuckoo here now. But um, look, I, I really need to know whether you exist. I, I, I'll make a deal with you. I'll, make, I'll go and buy a Bible and I'll read it from cover to cover. I promise. I, I promise that I'll read it from cover to cover. Even the boring bits in there. I'll read every single word. But by the time I've read the last page of this book that you wrote... You have to have revealed yourself to me. I need to know that you exist. And if you haven't, by then, that's it. You've had your chance. I'll go somewhere else. So I asked my friends, where, where do you think I can buy a Bible? And they said, oh, I think a Christian bookshop. So I'll never forget the face of this guy when I walked into the Christian bookshop. And I said, excuse me, do you sell Bibles? And he goes, uh, duh, the, yeah, look, fool. I was amazed at the amount of Bibles, thick ones, thin ones, big ones, you know, cheap ones, expensive ones. And he says, which one do you want? I said, the cheapest one. I don't want to buy too, pay too much for a Bible. So I bought this Bible, and I took it to my work. I was working in a textile factory making all these textile things. So I had 30 machines that I was responsible for. I was a waiter, and I looked after intellectually disabled kids. And so... At the factory, I didn't have time to read because I worked 19 hours a day. The only time that I could read was during my coffee break and my lunch break. And so I'd sit down there at my coffee break. Everybody would go outside, have coffee and a smoke. I would grab my Bible and I'd read my Bible. And I'll tell you what, when I was reading Genesis, all these words were jumping out. And I just got so excited because God was, I believe, God was speaking to me. And all of a sudden I felt so unworthy. If this is truly the word of God, a holy, a holy book, who am I, a disgusting, filthy person, to, be, to read this book? I felt so unworthy to read it, but I couldn't put it down. And I kept on reading and I couldn't wait until it was lunch break so I could read some more so this God could speak to me more. And every time, you know, I couldn't wait until it was a lunch break or coffee break. Until one day, this guy saw me sitting there in the factory. He walked past and he says, what are you reading? And I thought, you smart Alec, you're not going to be, you're, of course, not approving what I'm reading. So I said, I am reading the Bible, all right? And I don't care what you think. And he goes, no, praise the Lord. I have never seen anybody read the Bible. You're the first one. I said, well, there you go. It happens to be me, all right? I'm reading the Bible there. And he goes, no, when did you get saved? I said, saved from what? He said, no, when did you become a Christian? I didn't know you were a Christian. I said, I'm not a Christian. I'm just reading the Bible. He said, you're not a Christian and you're reading the Bible at work? I said, yes, can I please read this Bible? And he said, he said well, do you go to church? I said, no, I'm just reading this book, all right? He said, you don't go to church. You're not a Christian. He said, maybe you'd like to come to our home group. I said, what's that? He said, we gather together, we have prayer time, singing, we read some of the words, and then we have fellowship. I said, I'll ask my wife if she wants to come then, on a Wednesday night. Anyway, I asked my wife on a Wednesday night, do you want to come to this prayer meeting? She goes, no way. I said, oh, come with me, I don't want to go on my own. So she came with me anyway, and then we're looking for the place, couldn't find it, we're late, but boy, we got into this place, and we thought, my goodness, all these people are Fruit Loops. You know, because they were all with their hands up in the air worshipping this Jesus, you know, hallelujah, and going for it. And we thought, oh, my goodness, this is the funniest, weirdest thing that we've ever seen in our lives. I dared not to look at my wife, and she didn't want to look at me because we knew we would crack up laughing because we'd never seen anything so funny like that. But we sat down. We sat down. We didn't want to offend anybody, and we just watched. But then they stopped singing, praise the Lord, and then they opened up, they opened up the Bible, and they started to teach from the Bible. 
And you know what they were doing? You know, at work, at this factory, I would read and I'd say, I don't understand this. Hey, God, I'm sure you didn't write this so that I can't understand. I'm sure you wrote it with some meaning, yeah? So I'd underline it or put a question mark there. But here in this meeting, they were answering my questions. And I thought, hang on a minute. This is a setup, of course. This guy obviously got a hold of my Bible when I was doing my machines. And that's how they get their people in their cult here, you see. That's how, you know, obviously, that's how. But I'm not that stupid, I thought. No way are you going to get me in this, like this. But, you know, it was a setup. It wasn't a setup by man. It was definitely a setup by God. And uh, so my, my questions were being answered there. I was amazed. But the best thing was at the end when they had fellowship with one another. It seemed to me that they really loved one another. I hadn't seen that anywhere. See, love to me was I do something for you and therefore you do something for me. That was love. That's how I was brought up. You, I do this for you, so you now you do something for me. But that's not love. These people were actually doing things for people in the neighborhood who weren't even Christian. A lady who was sick and they were making casseroles for her. She was not even a Christian. In fact, she didn't even like Christians. But they noticed that she had no family members and they were taking turns and bringing a casserole to this sick lady. And another guy, the young people were discussing whose turn it was to mow the lawn for this guy who broke his leg, an old guy. For free. Not for, nothing, not for something, for free. And they were gathering up money for the missionaries, whatever that was. And so I'm thinking, what is it for you? And are you doing this in order for, to, to, to try and pull us into your cult? Anyway, we left and my wife said, I am never going back to those crazy people. I said, yes, darling. I couldn't wait until it was Wednesday again to go back. I wanted to see if these people were genuine. And so the fourth week I came back and I, I just knew that these people had Jesus. And I knew that this is what was missing in my life. I knew that the love that they were showing one another and others, that that was what I wanted. I wanted this Jesus that they worshipped. And so I asked them, please, can you pray with me? And I got on my knees and they laid their hands on my shoulders and my head. And they prayed. And I got so zapped by God. So zapped. Now that when I stood up, I just knew that I was a new creation. I just knew that God had a plan and a purpose for my life. My life is not meant to be boring. And I got so radically touched then. And I'm so radically, so, I began so radical to come for Christ. I'm still as radical today for Jesus as the day that I gave my life to Jesus. I understood that he paid with his life on that cross. He bought my life. I knew that God had entrusted me his power and authority over the enemy. I knew that who I was now, a child of the Most High God, when I left that place. Well, I came home, and my wife said, What happened to you? I said, What? She goes, You're glowing. I said, Really? I, she, I said, Well, it's because I, I met Jesus. She goes, You've been to that cult again, haven't you? I said, no, 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 it's not a cult, darling. It's real, and you need to also. Well, my wife went that way in the world, and I went that way with Jesus. We had World War III in our house for a long time, I can tell you. A long time. and Because uh, we used to go to the pub together, get drunk together, go and have some marijuana together, and she'd still come home drunk and on marijuana, stoned like anything, and then with her friends, and they would come, and I'm, I'm, I'm not into that anymore. I love the Lord my God now. And I'd say to them, you need to know Christ. And the more I spoke about Jesus, the more she would just be anti-God and anti-church and anti-everything. People said to me, why don't you divorce her? I said, no. 
I made a promise in good times and in bad times. This is a bad time. But I'm giving it to him. Until eight and a half years later, God challenged me four years after that incident. He tells me to keep praying for her. Pray for her salvation and you love her. I didn't love her anymore. I, I hated her. I, I'm, I'm already speaking from the pulpit in our church and I'm hating my wife. What a hypocrite. Until I met with God in my bedroom and he challenged me to pray for her salvation and to, and to uh, uh, love her. So God gave me his love for her and I, I loved her with his love. I didn't have any love, but he had to give me his love for her. And so we stayed together that way. And I, you know what I said every day from that day of on? Thank you, God, for the day that is coming that she is going to give her life to you. Four and a half years after that prayer, she gave her life to Christ at three o'clock in the morning. And we had a wonderful 18 months together. Wonderful 18 months. She went to church with me, came to prayer meetings with me. We did things together. I had my wife back again. We were a family again. Awesome. And then I went into nursing. I wanted to always be a nurse as well, serving God as a nurse. And I started nursing in an old people's hospital. And then at 4 o'clock in the afternoon one day, I knocked off work, went home. My brother wrote a little note on our table. He was boarding with us at the time. And he said, ring the hospital. So I rang the hospital. I said, yes, this is Ronnie Haber. And they said, you better come to the hospital. I said, what for? Well, because your wife is here. I said, what's wrong with her? Well, you better come. So I ran across the road to a family of our church. And I said, Jill, Alan, pray. I said, something's happened. So I came to the, to the hospital. And there, this doctor came up towards. He said, Mr. Haber? He said, yes. He said, I'm so sorry. Your wife has already passed away. And both your children are so badly injured. They're not going to make it. They're on life support system. I want you to go to the morgue to identify your wife and then go to the ICU and say goodbye to your children. Well, I, I, I just was absolutely numb. I went to the morgue, and there was my mangled-up wife. I identified her, and I just kept on looking at her. This is my best friend now, my best friend. And I, say, I, I said, Jesus, I just don't understand. All these years, it was World War Three at our place. Now we have this incredible life together. Now you take her home. I don't understand. I do realize that I don't need to understand everything. I also, I'm not mad with you. I just, I'm, I'm sure nothing happens to me without your permission. I'm sure you permitted this for whatever reason. You know what's best for me, but I don't understand. Give me the grace and help me to endure this, this moment because of this loss. Then I went to the ICU and there, both my kids were bleeding from their ears, eyes, nose, everywhere. And uh, the doctors and the nurse said, you better say goodbye because they're not going to make it. But if they do make it, if, say, for instance, they do make it, they'll be vegetables for life. And they're going to be uh, in this hospital for a long, long time, six months at least. Well, we had people come from all over the place when they heard this. They came and they asked permission whether they could, they could pray for my kids. People came in, they laid their hands on my kids, and they said, in the name of Jesus, child of the Most High God, be healed in Jesus' name. And you know, after six weeks, not one, but both my children were released from hospital completely healed. You know, only, only God can do this. I knew that, you know, the, the neurologist he came up to me, he says, Mr. Haber, I've been a doctor for many decades, and I've seen things in my life that I cannot explain, he said. I've seen things happen. He said, but this with your children has topped a lot. 
I just want to let you know it is impossible for your children to be healed. He said, we haven't done anything. You definitely had help from somewhere else. So he acknowledged that God had intervened. The nursing staff acknowledged he had intervened. And I knew that if God can do this with my children, God can do anything, absolutely anything. And then truly, nothing is impossible with God, right? So I knew that. Then a year later, I marry Kay, an Australian nurse. And because I said, I don't want to be on my own. I want a mother for my kids. And so uh, we did. And we had a wonderful life together. And we had a wonderful, uh, huge house, you know, a, a massive house, beautiful, one of those home, beautiful homes in the magazine. We had everything on it. Everything was computerized. You name it, we had it. Beautiful new cars. We had plenty of money. We had uh, we can go on a world tour every year. You know, we were well off. No debt, no nothing. We had all paid off. Awesome. Fantastic. Had the best garden in the whole area. Even I won a prize from the council for my best garden. I loved gardening. Until one day I was potting around in my garden and putting seedlings in there. And God says, <clears throat> Ronnie, are you happy? I said, uh, yeah, I'm a happy guy. Are you really happy? I said, I'm really happy. He said, but are you satisfied? I said, no. No, 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 no. I'm not satisfied. Satisfied with how you're blessing me? Absolutely. But I'm not satisfied with what I'm doing for you. I'm busy. Yes. I'm busy in the church. Yes. Doing all sorts of things for all sorts of people. Yes. But I'm not doing enough. I know. I just found out that week that 34,000 children die every single day on this planet because of starvation. Today, According to statistics, it's under the 30,000 per day today. 30,000 kids die every single day of starvation. How is this possible? I just looked at this crowd, trying to imagine this crowd of 34,000. And Jesus said, do you think I care for them? I'm sure you do. Do I care, though? And, well, I don't know who they are. They're just faces, but not to Jesus. He knows them already before they were born. And he's got a plan and a purpose for every single one of them. And I thought, would it make a difference if I knew these kids? I think it would, wouldn't it? Would it make a difference for us if we look at a crowd and then we know they, all these people are going to die today of starvation? We don't know any of them. But if we did, if we could recognize one of them in the crowd there, that is my neighbor's kid or my cousin or my, or my uh, uh, grandchild, You'd do everything. You'd sell your own shoes if that's all you had in order to rescue that one, wouldn't you? But really, what's the difference? Isn't every human being special? All these kids that we've got at our place, I always say, each one of you is special, created in the image of God. God has got a plan and a purpose for you. Each one. So God said to me, are you ready? I said, for what? He said, pack up your bags, sell everything follow me. I ran inside. I said, darling, to my wife, sit down. She goes, what? I said, I believe God is saying, pack up, sell up, and follow him. She goes, yes, I'm ready. She knew when she was 14 years old, God had already called her to be a missionary. Don't hang on to all the luxurious things in your life, you know, because one day you're going to have to let them all go. So she was ready. She went to ring the real estate agent. You know, this is financial crisis area in Australia. In Australia. Nobody gives up their job, just us. We gave up our job. We sold our house. We said goodbye to our family. We said goodbye to our church. Everybody thought we'd flipped. Crazy, crazy people. We went up North Queensland there, went to Bible College to prepare ourselves. And we said, and then, you know, uh, after that, when we finished, 
We said, okay, God, you can send us anywhere you like. Anywhere. Russia, China, you know, Siberia, anywhere except for Holland. I never want to go there again. I don't want to. I go to Holland now every year, preach every year there for a month. I can handle that, but I don't have to live there. Hallelujah. And so then, then God sends us to Borneo. Now, Borneo, yeah, you can almost swim across here to Borneo. And uh, there uh, to, to minister, to bring the gospel message to the Dayak people. The Dayaks are beautiful people. The, um, and they are, there's about 400 different tribes on the island of uh, Borneo. Uh, it's the third largest island in the world. It's made up of three different countries, East Malaysia, Brunei, and Kalimantan, which is Indonesia. Uh, three quarters of the island is Kalimantan. So we live in Kalimantan. There we started to uh, go to the tribes, the different tribes, and preach the gospel there to them. And uh, as we were doing that, you know, we found a lot of people were open to the gospel, and a lot of people have been receiving Christ. We've planted many churches there already amongst all the different tribes, and we've seen some wonderful, incredible miracles take place. But one thing that bothered us to no end was to see a lot of the kids that were neglected. A lot of the kids who were orphaned, they were, because the people were poor, they couldn't even look after the orphans. Not on the Malaysian side, but on the Indonesian side. In the Indonesian side, no one cares about anybody there. In the Malaysian side, the government still cares about the, the local people. The Indonesian side is a very different thing. Even though the same group of people, yet they don't, are not looked after. And so we saw that these kids were left on their own to fend for themselves. If they were strong, they would make it. If they were weak, they would die. And the wild animals will eat them up. But and then we saw all sorts of scenarios. Little girls, 11, 12 years old, as soon as they get their first period, they would be married off by the witch doctor, married off to an old ghastly guy who's already got three or four wives. And their family would get a couple of pigs in exchange for their daughters. We went to a wedding like that, where this kid cried and cried and cried and cried and cried, all the way through the ceremony. Cried, because she knew what, was in, what she was in for. And you see these 12-year-olds with a big belly like this, pregnant already. And by the time they're 20, they've already had three, four, five, six children. Half of them are dead because of neglect, and the other half are neglected. They have no concept of love, have never experienced love, joy, nothing like that. They're abused and used. And I, I tell you what, you know, if I just felt like every time I saw kids like this, I wanted to grab, it, grab them and run for it. But I knew very well they would come after me and lop me head off. You know, because the, somebody said to me years ago, oh, you work amongst the former headhunters. I said, no, love, still headhunters today. You go in, further and further into the interior, the more primitive they are, the more inclined lop, to lop your head off there for no reason at all. So we're still very careful as we go into the interior. I just come back from the interior way out in the, in the jungle there. We traveled for a, a number of days to get there and then a number of days to come back. So we had to... Uh, pull the canoe and push the canoe up, get everything out and the waterfalls there, and then up the next level and up the next level in order to get to some of these tribes. And God challenged me, start bringing these kids in. And I said, with what? I can barely make ends meet myself with my family. You bring them in, I look after the rest. So we started to bring girls in first, these girls we wanted to rescue. We, we encouraged the parents, if they had parents, Give these girls to us. We will look after them. They'll be safe with us. They won't be married off by the witch doctor then. And so we had seven girls in our house first. And seven girls, of course, we have to feed them, clothe them, send them to school and all that. Cost money. But God said he will look after that. At the end of the month, enough extra money turned up in their account. Not too much, not too little, just enough to pay the bills for these girls. Wow. 
So we said, okay, God, this is awesome. If you can do with seven girls, surely you can do with 30 girls, right? 30 was the max that we could have in our house because we couldn't fit any more in there. Actually, it's not a very good idea to have 30 girls in one house, I've discovered. I tell you what, girls, they never shut up. They always talk. And our place was just like a chicken wren. Even in the sleep, they would keep on talking. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, and, and, the, and the terrible thing was that we only had one bathroom. And you could never use the bathroom because it was always taken by these girls. You know? So anyway, but um, that's all we could have. But guess what happened at the end of the month? Again, just enough came in. Not too much, not too little, just enough to pay all the bills. Awesome. So we, so we said, God, if you can do with 30, surely you can do with 70. God was stretching our faith to believe for the impossible, right? So we said, but we need to bring boys in as well. We started to look for land and all that. Anyway, to cut a long story short, you can read it in my book. Uh, God challenged us to prepare a place for 1,000 neglected kids and build schools for 2,000. And now, all these years later, we've been there 23 years, 14 years that we've started up with Living Waters Village, and we have now almost 300 hectares of property there in the middle of nowhere and where we've built a village. And you can see on the next newsletter downstairs a map inside what, we've already, what God has already helped us to build and what we're still going to build. And all these kids are living with us now. And each one is special. Each one. And each one that has come, some of them were barely alive when we found them. Sometimes we find them in the jungle. Sometimes they're dumped at our place. Sometimes they walk to our place. They've heard about our place and they come walking themselves. For four days they're walking to get to our place. We just had 32 turn up last week. 32. This week another 80 are arriving. 80. I don't even have enough beds for that yet. They just emailed me because I was in Kuching two days ago and they said, we don't have any more sheets, we don't have any more pillow covers, we don't have any more mattress covers, can you bring some more from Kuching? You know, when I leave from Kuching with my car, my land cruiser, it is piled up high as I leave from Kuching with two or three tons of material in my car. My car is like a tank. Some photos downstairs of my car, you should see it. Everybody that I pass, they all go... One policeman stopped me one morning at 5 o'clock in the morning. He says, what is this? What, is it? what, what, do you, what have you got on the car here? I said, I know it looks terrible, but it's, I, I have orphanage for all my kids. He said, you can't drive like this. I said, well, I've been doing it for years and years and years. He said, really? I said, yes. I said, and every time at the border, there's police posts there all over that. never said, I cannot do it. He said, they never told you you cannot drive like this? I said, no. He said, uh, okay, well, drive careful then, yeah? Hallelujah. So now we go with two cars and three cars. My car was just pinched last week in Kuching. Uh, it was stolen by somebody. I don't know why that God allowed that to happen, other than to say that the thief obviously doesn't know God yet. So we're praying now for the thief. God, zap the thief. You know, Reveal yourself to the thief so the thief will come to know you personally and bring the car back. And if not, well, God will have another plan, you know. So uh, these sort of things happen all the time. Anyway, so we, we've got all these kids now with us, and it's awesome to see them now. Some of them are, were barely alive when they came to our place. I had a little kid that I found at the river one day, and uh, as I washed myself in the river and I came out, and here she's standing with a bloated belly, as skinny as anything. Just I mean, there's a photo downstairs. Just have a look. And uh, skinny as anything, bloated belly, riddled with scabies, and I, I thought, oh, mate, you look terrible. So I grabbed him by the hand. I took him to the tribal chief, and I said, who does he belong to? He said, nobody. His parents died last year. 
I said, so who's looking after him? And they said, nobody. He, he's got to look after himself. He's got to feed himself. I said, look at him. He's almost, he's almost falling over because he can't, he, he's so weak. And he says, so? I said, so, so I will take him home with me. And I will look after him. And I will bring him back to health. But if I take him, I'm not going to bring him back to health and then bring him back here so he can look after himself. If I take him, I take him for good. And he says, take him. We don't want him. So I took him home. We had one girl from his tribe, the Mate tribe. And she was able to communicate with him. And so we, get, we have 64 different languages in our village. 60, kids from 64 different tribes. They all have a different language. Praise God, they all go to our school and learn Bahasa Indonesia. But uh, sometimes they come in and they, they have no understanding of Bahasa Indonesia at all. And so we named the kid Ezra. We think he was about six years old. We could see it on his teeth. Uh, but um, I took him to the doctor and uh, got him to examine the, uh, uh, Ezra. And the doctor said, Mister, if you hadn't have picked him up and brought him back, he, I would have given him one week to live. He said, he's so sick. He's got TB, tuberculosis already far advanced. He's riddled with scabies, he's riddled with worms. Ezra had nightmares every night. One of us, my wife, and then I would take turns of sleeping with him just to comfort him, just to let him know that he, this is his home. Where is mom and dad now? You know, he, he's safe. There's food here every day. The first couple of weeks, he had it every night, nightmares. And then after that, uh, they stopped. He started to grow his hair. His eyes started to become uh, glowy. Uh, his skin became smooth again, and he started to get a smile on his face. Now he's already 21 years old. He's a good friend of my younger son, Joel, and he just finished high school. Praise the Lord. Such an awesome, fantastic kid, and loves the Lord. You know, we've got a lot of our, I've got 44 teachers at our school, our primary school and our secondary school. 44 teachers. They're our own children. They've gone through the, gone through the ministry. We, uh, once they finish high school, we send them off to university. They become our teachers, our doctors, our nurses, our administrators, and everybody. So they come back, and they teach, and they share, and they help with the next generation coming in. Awesome to see that. I've got 61 now in different universities and Bible colleges uh, throughout Indonesia at the moment that we're supporting, uh, our kids that we send off. And uh, so these, many of them want to be pastors and church planters. And uh, so we've got a number of them in the interior now planting churches. So fantastic to see them have a real passion for the Lord. So as, as we go to the tribes there, we want to make sure that they here have an opportunity to listen to the gospel message. So we bring our big medicine box with us, right? That's an open door often in lots of villages. And we go in there and then we preach the word and we share with them. And, uh, and help them in every way. But we don't want to offend them. So we make sure we don't offend them. So we sleep where they sleep. We bathe where they bathe. We drink what they drink. We eat what they eat. And we've had lots of delicacies to eat over the years since we've been there in the jungles, meeting all these people. I remember one day when we were there, and these people were so poor but so honored that we were there, and they made this meal for us. And they had a bowl of rice and a bowl of this soupy stuff with some green long things out of the jungle and some blobs of meat in there. And I got a scoop of rice on my plate and a scoop of this soupy stuff on my rice. We said grace, and we started to eat. And I had two lumps of meat on my plate. And I'm picking away at the first bit of meat, and I'm thinking, well, it's certainly not delicious. Uh, it wasn't disgusting either. It was just edible. But I thought, what is it? You know, lots of bones, a little bit of meat. I had no idea what it was. Anyway, I pick away and eat that with vegetables and rice. And then I wanted to start on the next bit of meat. And I touched the next bit of meat. And it turned over, as I touched it, turned over on my plate. And to my horror, I realized what I was eating. I was eating a rat because the second bit of meat was the head of the rat still intact 
with the snout, the teeth were still in there, the eyes were still in its socket. And it seemed to me when I looked at the rat's head, it was staring at me and I'm staring at the rat's head. I'm thinking, oh God, I just ate a bit of rat and I got the head still on the plate. And I, I thought, Ronnie, just stay cool, calm, don't pull a funny face, you know, like, Ugh, you know, because in a minute you'll offend people and then they won't want to listen to what you have to say. So stay normal. So I, I, I looked at the lady who made the meal and I smiled at her and she smiled back and I, as if nothing was wrong. But I tell you what, inside of my body was World War Three brewing. Everything that I'd already eaten up sat here wanted to come out. And I thought, oh, God, I'm just about to throw up. Lord, please help me to forget what I've just seen because in a minute I'm going to throw up and I'm going to offend everybody here. So I started to think of flowers and, and trees and, and, and my wife sp eating spaghetti at home or anything to get my mind off, just this rat's head. So I, I, I pushed the rat's head in, I pulled it apart, and uh, it looked as though I'd been picking at it and you know, eating it, and I ate all the vegetables and the rice, and it all stayed down. Hallelujah. Do you say grace before you eat here? I sure hope you do. Well, we, we say grace over there as well, but I've learned that grace takes on a whole new meaning over there. When we say grace there, we mean every single word of it. Oh, God, have mercy on us. We're about to eat now, Lord. Just bless this food, and if there's anything still alive on my plate, then kill it now in Jesus' name. I had food poisoning twice over there and ended up in the hospital, but I'm still okay. So, no, it wasn't too bad after all, really. I remember going to one of the tribes, the Iban tribe, and uh, we were discussing about the gospel message, about Jesus. And uh, they, they were all saying, well, do we, do we receive him individually or do we receive him corporately? And I said, that's up to you. you, you you're up to you how you want to do it. You know, so they were discussing what's the best thing. So after a couple of hours sitting on this floorboards, I'm not used to that, all of a sudden I said to the guy, one of the chief priests, uh, chief, uh, um, tribal chiefs, I said, uh, uh, the toilet. I really need to go to the toilet. Uh, where is the toilet? He said, oh, you do, through that door there outside. I said, it, well, is it left outside or right? He said, oh, no, you don't understand. Just outside anywhere you like <laughs> is the toilet. I said, ah. He said, but you have to do a number one or a number two. I said, I'm not going to tell you that. That's private. He said, no, I just want to warn you. If you do no, want to do a number two, you must take a stick with you. I said, what do I want a stick for? He said, because the pigs in the jungle are very impatient. They don't always wait until you're finished. So you need to have a stick to hit them off you. I said, oh, really? Anyway, I found out it's true. One day I was in the jungle there with my stick. But praise God, I had my stick. Because all of a sudden I could hear this noise behind me. And I thought there's already a pig coming. But praise God, I had my stick. So I turned around to give it a hit over the head. But there was no pig. Instead, there were all these children watching me. I said, go away, I'm doing something private here. And one of the older kids, he said, no, you don't understand. I said, what? He said, we think like this, our skin color, chocolate color, and our number two, chocolate color. But you white men, white skin, we want to know if your number two is white as well. And we want to see it before the pigs get at it. Logic, right? Logic. I said, no, it is not white, it is chocolate color just like yours. Now go away and leave me alone. You're laughing. I was not laughing then, I can assure you. I wanted to crawl home and never come back again. I did not want to be there. You know what now, though? I don't really care. I don't really care. You know, because I look at these people in their eyes, and they're so horribly lost. I don't really care whether I have to eat a bit of rat. I still don't like to eat rat and dog and snake and who knows, whatever. I don't ask anymore, what is this? What are you cooking? 
I've made that mistake before. What are you thinking? Oh, just, oh my goodness, I shouldn't have asked. Better not to ask. Just pray over it. Bless it, Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you. And you just eat with grace. Right? And so I don't ask anymore. If I have to uh, bathe myself in, 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 in all these toilets that float on the river there with all the poo floating there, and they go in the river there to have a bath, I go in the river to have a bath with them. Don't want to offend them. Didn't Jesus go to the cross willingly? Nailed himself to the cross there willingly? I mean, it's a little bit more worse than eating a bit of rat or dog, right? But didn't he say to us, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations? Go, 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 go. I meet so many Christians today who want to go, but they have lots of requirements. I will go if I have my handphone, my computer. I want uh, a good bank account. I want uh, enough clothes. I want this, I want that, I want this, and I want that. But didn't he just say go? Don't worry about all that stuff. Just go. Just do it. There are people who are dying every day without knowing Christ. They're not going to heaven. They're going to hell. You know that. But one day we're all going to stand before the throne of God and he's going to say, what have you done with what I've entrusted to you? Or why haven't you listened? You know what I've learned? It is much better to be obedient to God than disobedient. Much better. You know, one day as I was sitting outside in a training center, Every morning we get up at 5 o'clock. I get up at 4. Some girls get up at 3 for starting cooking. And the majority get up about 4, 35 o'clock. 5.30 we have prayer meeting for everybody. All come together. And then after prayer meeting we have breakfast. After breakfast we get ready for school. And I was sitting outside under the veranda with my coffee. And I'm thinking as I'm looking at all the kids getting ready for school. Missionaries were buzzing around there, helping out, volunteers there. And I'm thinking, drinking coffee. Wow, God, look at this. I'm so blessed to be able to witness all this. And a kid come up to me, a little boy, and, he, and he, uh, he, get, he embraces me. He said, have a great day, Dad. And another one goes, can you do my shoelace? I still can't do it, Pa. And another one comes, he says, Dad, I had a nightmare last night. Can I share it with you? I said, yes, come on, share it with me. And, uh, and then they get on the, on, the, on, on the truck there to go to school. And I'm thinking, God, I am so blessed to witness all this. And then I thought, I'm so grateful, Lord that you called us so many years ago in Australia to give up everything and go with you, you know, to come here. Fantastic, because as a result, this place is here, and all these kids are here, and all these missionaries and all these people are here. Fantastic. And then all of a sudden I thought, and what if I had said to God, no way, I don't want to go anywhere. I like it here. I like my church. I like my work. I like my family. I like my friends. I like it here, God. Send somebody else. Don't send me. I don't want to go. Would this place still exist then, Living Waters Village? It wouldn't. Some people say, oh, God would have called somebody else. Oh, yeah? How come thousands of people die every day without knowing that Jesus came the first time? It means to me that if I had disobeyed God, this village wouldn't have been there. And these kids that are there, that one would have died. That one would have been sold. That one would have been sold. That one would have died. Lots of these kids would have been dead and buried already. We hadn't listened. I don't say this in order to say, well done, Ronnie. No. What I'm saying is, if we obey God, others will be blessed as a result of our obedience. If we disobey God, people will miss out. We'll miss out on the blessings of God because we have been disobedient. So it's much better to obey God. I'm so glad. You know, I get testimonies of these kids. Things that have happened to them. 
They've been abused to no end. And then they come, some of them by the witch doctor, and they are to be the next witch doctor. But now they know Christ. Jesus is in their life. They don't want nothing to do with the witch doctor anymore. They're set free. The curse has been broken over their lives. They don't want nothing to do about that. And, but I'm so grateful that these kids can come to a place in the middle of the jungle there and be set free. Free from demonic activity. You know, and so I'm a debtor, just like I said before. I got saved. Somebody shared it with me. Somebody brought me. This guy invited me to go to this home group. And now I am inviting others into the kingdom of God. And these others now, these kids of mine, are now inviting others. And they're inviting others. And, it, and it's passed on from one to the other. Because we stepped out in faith and we were obedient to God. And as a result, others are coming into the kingdom of God. What, if, what would have happened if this guy who, invi- who invited me didn't invite me? Maybe somebody else would have invited me and maybe not at all. A huge responsibility. Meaning, I'm a debtor now as well. You are a debtor, just like Paul, if you've got Christ living in you. This message is not just meant for us. This message is meant for mankind. Those who are saved know that if we die, we're going to go and be with Jesus forever and ever, right? Forever and ever. But a lot of lovely people and not so lovely people are going to hell because they don't even know that he came the first time. How scary is that? But that responsibility has been put with us, the body of Christ. doesn't matter who you are to go out, no matter how young you are, how old you are, how poor you are, how rich you are, how healthy you are, how sick you are, we all have that responsibility now. I am a debtor just like Paul. You know, years ago, and I'll finish with this, years ago we went to a tribe there and uh, we were going to do A, B, C, D, E, share the gospel message with them. This is a tribe where already uh, later on from that day, 50 women and children would be decapitated, would be killed. The men were working in the jungle, and as they were working in the jungle, all their wives and their children were all decapitated, and their hands and their feet were cut off. As they came back to their village, their families were all cut into pieces. This was in 1997, when we had 6,000 people butchered to death there between the war between Madura and the Dayaks. Terrible, terrible time. I could not believe that this could still happen today, but it still does, and it still happens today. Not at our place. There's peace now in Kalimantan, praise the Lord. But there we went there to minister to the people there. We're going to do A, B, C, D, E. And then all of a sudden, this tribal chief came out the canoe, and he walked up to me. He says, you come with me to my village with this news that you have. Now, I don't know the guy. I don't know how you know me, but I do know that you don't, don't just go with anybody because, you know, there's still hostile tribes there. And I certainly didn't want to end up in a soup from some hostile tribe. But I just felt the Holy Spirit say, forget this day, go with this guy. So I took Johannes, one of my church planters, we got into the canoe, and this canoe was so narrow, my backside could just barely fit in there, and he had a little two-horsepower engine on the back. And so he putted up the Kapuas River, and then onto the side river, another side river, and then we were in the jungle, in a waterways, there through the jungles. The trees were overlapping one another, and it were like eerie dark tunnels. And all of a sudden, we come across this huge, ghastly, demonic idol that they carved out, out of rock smoldering there with some smoke there. They've been making offerings there. And a bit further on, another one on the left. They made out of a tree trunk that was standing up there, 
or really demonic. And all of a sudden, it, it was so creepy. And I'm thinking, oh, God, did I hear correctly? Was I supposed to go with these guys? Lord, I don't want to end up in the soup today, and I want to. Am I afraid sometimes? Absolutely. I know fear doesn't come from God. It comes from the enemy, but sometimes I just can't help myself. You know? And then I said, God, and what am I going to share with these people? Who are these people? I can't just open up the Word of God and say, Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, because they don't even know what a lamb is. They have no concept of a lamb. I can say a lamb is an animal with a head and four legs and goes, bah, but they don't, they don't know what it is. have no understanding of a lamb. I, usually, I often say, Jesus, the pig of God who takes away the sins of the world. And sometimes Westerners with me say, oh, you can't say that, that's blasphemy. I said, yes, I can. These tribal people do everything with the pig. They buy the bride with the pig. They sprinkle the blood of the pig. They do everything with the pig. They don't know what a lamb is. So for now... Before they know the word of God, it's pig. Jesus is the pig. Later on, I turn, turn it into a lamb when they know that it's a lamb. Right? They understand what a lamb is. But now it's a pig. If you can't handle it, go home. Go home. So anyway, go. And so, but you need to talk to the people in picture form, things that they understand. Because the tribal women and, and the children in particular, the men, they go and trade. But the women and children, they don't. They never see anybody. It was the first time they saw a white man with a long nose. Oh, my goodness. They all stared at me for 10 minutes. I don't think they thought I was really handsome because the way they looked at me like, like I was some sort of creep. And, and so I said, okay, okay, okay. It's enough. Finish. Don't need to stare. And, and I said, I know I'm not that handsome. And they go, no, it's your nose. Your nose is so long and pointy. I said, yeah, thank you. Make it even worse, you know. I mean, I used to get teased at school for the long nose. I was called Pinocchio. And uh, so I said, but they said, no, we like your nose. Our nose is flat like this, but we like a long pointy nose. I said, come here. I put it in the door and I slam the door and then you have a. But, you know, then, then oh, hundreds of people came because they heard, they heard that, that uh, um, uh, somebody was coming to tell them about a great spirit they knew nothing about. These are animists. They believe in a spirit in a tree and a spirit in a river and a spirit in the sun. They worship these things every day. They get up in the morning. They're fearful, wondering what, what, are, what are the spirits going to be like today? Will they receive my offerings? And every village has their own witch doctor who lords it over them. And by the time they go to bed, they're wondering, have I appeased the spirits today? If the child is sick or dies, they think it's their fault because obviously they didn't sacrifice enough to the spirit of health. If the rice paddy fails, they think it's their fault because obviously they didn't send, uh, sacrifice enough to the spirit of, of the harvest. So they live in constant fear. And so when the tribal chiefs, when I got there and all these hundreds of people were sitting there and they heard about that there's a great spirit they knew nothing about, well, they all were wondering, who is this great spirit? I have not made sacrifices to this great spirit. No wonder things are happening in our village. Bad things are happening because we haven't sacrificed to this great spirit yet. So they all came to listen. Who is this great spirit? So then the tribal chief said, okay, you, pointing to me, stand up, come, speak. So I got up and I thought, God, I got nothing. I have no picture, no nothing. But you didn't bring me here for nothing. You brought me here for a reason. Lord, I have nothing yet, but Lord God, just help me to speak the word. Just like the disciples did there in front of the Sanhedrin, you, Holy Spirit, gave the words to speak. Help me, God, to speak now to these people. Speak to them. And so I said, I grab you by the hand now, Lord. So guide me now. The first step I took, God gave me a picture. I learned something that day. 
God never ever pulls us, pushes us, pets us into submission, but he waits for us to respond with, in faith, trust in him. And so as I stepped out, I didn't even introduce myself, but I said, you know, there is a great spirit, a great spirit who created the heavens and the earth, and he created you and me. And this great spirit just loves each one of us so much. He wants, he knows each one of us, but he wants you and me to know him, to worship him. I said, you cannot see him. I said, but just imagine for now, he's over here. Here is the great spirit, and he represents eternal life, joy, happiness, all the wonderful things in life. That's him. He said, but there's also, I said, there's also uh, an evil spirit. And this evil spirit, you cannot see him often either. But he's over, just imagine he's over here. And he represents war and death and, and uh, jealousy and all the horrid things in life. That's him. I said, and did you know that every day when we bow down to the spirit of the tree and the spirit of the river and the spirit of the sun and the spirit of the harvest and we make offerings to them, actually we are bow down, bowing down to this, this evil spirit. And we have our backs turned to this great spirit who created us. And when he sees us do that, he grieves because he didn't create us so that we can, so that we can worship him, but so that we can worship him. He grieves. He's so saddened to see that. And, to, uh, and, and therefore, he sent his only son to this earth. And he sacrificed him for us, that whoever will believe in him now will never have to make another sacrifice again. Well, the people were stunned at this news. Stunned. And I said, you know, years ago, I made a decision to do away with them and to receive him. And I'm here now to tell you and to share with you that you can do the same. Do away with them, but receive him into your life. You cannot add him to your collection over here. It is either him or them. But you have to choose yourself. I can't make that decision for you. You have to do that yourself. So, so if you want to receive him and do away with him, you come forward now. We're going to pray. I had no idea what was about to happen then. But the people got up and ran forward. And the elders of this tribe ran and fell on the ground and started to weep and weep and say, oh, Great Spirit, we did not know you existed. We did not know we weren't allowed to do these things. Please forgive us. Please forgive us, Great Spirit. Well, I just, and they were weeping, crying, so remorseful were they. And I just stood there and, and crying with them. I couldn't do a thing. I couldn't pray with them. I, could, I was just completely speechless, and I'm weeping there with them. Church was birthed that moment, that day, in this place. And I thought, oh, God, I could have missed this moment so badly because I could have told the tribal chief, look, mate, I am busy today. I already planned my day. Somebody had to come to this tribe to bring this news, this message of love and salvation for them to respond. They were ripe for the picking now. And it happened to be me with my long nose turning up there, sharing with them. And I thought, how many more of these tribes are just waiting there for somebody to come and share with them also? And then I thought, how many people here in Singapore, people, in your streets, in your schools, in your workplaces, are just waiting for somebody to share with them that there is hope in this world, that there is a Savior, that they too can meet with the Savior of this world? How many? It changed my life that day. I realized the urgency of the matter in getting this gospel message out. Hence the reason I'm a debtor, just like Paul, we are all debtors, just like Paul. 
to get this message out as quick as we can, to as many as we can. And whether you go yourself, or whether you get somebody to go, or whether you are a prayer warrior or an intercessor, or whatever, we're all the body of Christ. God has given us gifts and talents in order to be able to use to get out there and get the job done. Because people are going to hell otherwise. I'm a debtor, just like Paul. When I was in prison in Indonesia, Paul encouraged me greatly. I had a car accident. A mentally disturbed lady jumped in front of my car to commit suicide. And she did. But I was the driver of that car. Now, over there, you are told if ever you're in an accident, never stop because they'll lynch you. A life for a life. Even if it's not your fault, it doesn't matter. Well, I stopped. I couldn't go on because my conscience wouldn't allow me to go on. I stopped. The lady was still breathing, but I think the people finished her off. She was mentally disturbed. She wasn't, they weren't going to get a compensation if she was still alive. I went to the police station with a couple of guys. There they locked me up and said that I'll be there for five years in jail. First three days I cried and cried. And I said, God, I don't know what you're doing. Why are you putting me here? I don't want to start a prison ministry. That was, that, was not, that was not my plan. And then after three days, you know, it was like God hit me over the head with a 4 by 2 piece of wood and said, are you finished your whinging now? Now get on with it. And so then I thought, if I'm here for five years, I'm here for five years. I can't do anything about it. God will look after my wife, and we had 200 children at that time. He will look after them as well. But there was a guy in my cell he didn't know the Lord. But I was allowed to have a Bible. My wife brought me a Bible. And as I'm reading the Word of God, this young fella got to know Christ. And because he got to know Christ and gave his life to the Lord, he was released early. I only ended up eight days in prison, not five years. Because the ex-chief of police, who's a Christian brother, I didn't even know that, but he heard that I was in prison, he got me out. But in the meantime, in those eight days... This kid in my cell, this young fella, he became a Christian. And he was released on good behavior because of his, all of a sudden his behavior was so different. So he was released. He came to our ministry. He became one of our leaders. And God used him instrumentally in buying the land that we purchased now. Who would have thought of that? And I was allowed to go back to the prison now to share the gospel message. I thought to God, you know how awesome you are. Because no way in the world before that, this incident... Could I go to the prison, knock on the door, say, hello, I just come here to share some news. They would have said, buzz off. But now, hey, Parani, come in. They all know me now. How awesome is that? So It became the talk of the town because the 200 children we had, when I was in jail, 20 kids came, turned up at the police station, and they said to the police, we want to see our dad. Uh, who's your dad? Parani. Parani, the white man? Yes. We want to see him. So they come and got me out of the cell, meet with the kids, and they're all crying and carrying on. This is the police headquarters. 200 police officers are in the headquarters there. They all came out to hear what the commotion was. They all saw us embracing one another, praying together. And then after a half an hour, you know, they, I had to go back to my cell. The, the 20 kids, they went home. Half an hour later, they come and get me again. You better come again. I said, what for? Because there's another 20 here. So 200 children turned up at the police station. We want you to release our dad. Right? So it became the talk of the town. 
So much so that I remember six months later, I'm going to the border to pick up a YWAM team. And here's, a, here's the police and the army. They have these checkpoints to check whether you've got weapons and drugs in your car. They were searching all the cars. And they got to my car, and this colonel, he opened the door as angry as anything, and he says, get out of that car. We're going to check your car. I said, okay, okay, okay. Just settle down. And then all of a sudden, here's this guy come out of the police station on the left-hand side, runs around my car, stands next to the colonel. He goes, this is the pastor that got locked up. You remember last year you know, for that accident? He goes, oh, yes, oh, your pastor, Tony. Oh, oh, wonderful to meet you. Yes, I've heard all about you. Hey, don't touch his car. I said, don't touch his car. Get out of his car. He's all right. You know, Pastor Ronnie, please go back into your car. We'll make way for you to go. And I'm, I'm thinking one minute I'm, they're just about yanking me out of the car. Next minute they're about you know, to carry me in the car. Just amazing. Word went around. You know, already now, because of so many miracles that have been happening on our property, they're saying to one another, to a number of the Muslims, they're saying, don't mess with those people on that property because their God is with them. I said to them, are they saying that, really? And one of my boys said, yes, Dad, that's what they're saying. I said, great. Well, let them share it around a little bit more. You know, don't mess with those people, because if you mess with them, you'll be messing with their God. You do not want to be messing with our God, right? Amen. People should be saying that about you as well, wherever you live. Okay. People, I need to finish there because time is running out. I think you're getting hungry for lunch. Before I pray and end in prayer, there's lots of photos on level one. Level one? Level one, where you can have coffee and tea and, and whatever. And uh, so there's lots of newsletters there. Well, not lots. There's a few left. Um, so they're there. In the middle of uh, this newsletter, there's a big map of uh, uh, Living Waters Village. You can have a look there and see what um, God has already done there in the uh, number of years that we've been there. And uh, so you can grab those. There's also a book out, and I've only got one left. I've got more here in Singapore, but they're just not here. But this is the English version. God told me to write it a couple of years ago to inspire people that God is still alive and he still does wonders today. So the English version is available and the Chinese version. Chinese version I still have downstairs. The English I don't, but you just put your name on the piece of paper and we get it there tomorrow. Tomorrow they will arrive. And uh, so if you don't have enough money with you or you didn't uh, uh, you know, allow for that, you can just take whatever you want. And then uh, there's a form down there with an account here in Singapore so you can just put, a, put it in direct deposit, and I trust that you'll do the right thing. So grab whatever you want. If you want a whole stack of books, there was a guy who bought 300 books, and uh, he uh, gave them all out. He gave them all out because he said this book is so great in it because it proves that God is still alive and he still does miracles today. He said, you'll be surprised how many Christians don't believe that anymore. So they're available. You can take as many as you like. Also the DVD from the ministry over there, a guy from Holland from the television network, came and did that fantastic tool for evangelization as well. And then there's lots of um, children that you can sponsor. There's lots of cards that you can sponsor kids. You can take these with you home. But if you sponsor a child, you have to fill out one of these. Give that to us here today. So you write the child's name on the top, your details on the bottom. If you want to sponsor more than one child, just write them on the back. You don't need to do multiple of these. So you can take all the photos from all the kids that you want to sponsor with you. And you can write to them. And uh, so on the back, it's got a P.O. box in Kuching in Malaysia. We live in Indonesia, but our P.O. box is in Malaysia because it's much more trustworthy, the, POs, the, the uh, postal services in Malaysia than it is in Indonesia. So they are there. Uh, you can also, I, I'm selling my family, my own family. 
So I told them I'm going to tell. But so you can, if you want to sponsor my family, you can take photos of them as well. And then if you want to come over and help us, you are most welcome. We get lots and lots of people every year to come over. I think there's some of them you here that have already been to our place, right? Who's been to our place? Yes, one hand there. Um, so um, they come to our place, and uh, you're most welcome to come for a week, two weeks, a month, two months, two years, or whatever, right? I need people in our school, teachers, and teachers who can teach our teachers. I need medical staff. I need um, uh, mechanics. I need uh, uh, chicken farmers, fish farmers, uh, all sorts of uh, uh, laborers and builders, and you name it. I, we can do it with anybody who is just prepared to roll up their sleeves to get stuck into it, who cook and clean and, and wash bottoms and whatever else you know that needs to be done. Anything and everything needs to be done. Also, if you are looking for a husband or a wife, we can fix you up with somebody as well. But if we find you a bride or a groom, then we have the policy. Jacob had to work 14 years for Rachel. We have that rule at our place as well. So you'll be there for a while. All right? Let's pray. Father, you're such an awesome God. I thank you so much, Lord Jesus, for your presence here always with us. I thank you, Lord God, for touching our lives anew every day, afresh every day. Thank you for your word that you've entrusted to us. And I pray, God, that all of us have learned something again today, that we go home with this and realize that we're all debtors, debtors of sharing the love of Christ, the unconditional love of Christ with the world around us. Lord, help us to be bold and strong, to step out in faith, to believe for the impossible, Lord God, knowing that the, the, the Lord our God is with us always. Lord Jesus, thank you for every soul here. And I pray, God, that all of us, Lord, uh, will understand that as, as we are debtors, Lord God, that we need to step out and uh, be obedient to you, Lord. And so that as we then stand before your throne one day, Lord God, when we don't breathe anymore, when we go to your throne, that you will say, well done, you faithful, good and faithful servant. Well done. Father, I thank you. Lord, help us to have a passion for the lost. Help us to see people through your eyes, Lord God. Not judgmentally, Lord God, but through your eyes with incredible love. Lord, thank you for saving us and thank you for helping us to save others with the help of you, Holy Spirit. Lord, we love you. Lord, bless this church. Bless all the people here. Bless the leadership, Lord God. Thank you, Father, for their passion for the lost and that they are going out into the world, Lord, to bring the gospel message of love and salvation, touching lives, Lord, and, uh, and uh, seeing wonderful miracles take place. Lord, I thank you. All glory and honor to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.